Okay. So we'll um, begin with the visualization like we usually do and the recitation. Because um, it's really important at the beginning of teachings that we uh, are clear in our own mind uh, what our refuge is. In other words, what spiritual tradition we follow. And so that's why we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha at the beginning. And to also clarify in our own minds why we're following that tradition. And so we generate bodhicitta because we want to become Buddhists in order to benefit all beings most effectively. So this is, is really quite important. If, if in our own mind we're not sure what spiritual tradition we're following, then it makes it very difficult to follow it, doesn't it? Because our mind is continually tormented by doubt or it falls over into wrong conceptions. And, you know, and then we can't really get anywhere because our heart isn't in it. Yeah. So it's, that's why it's important to clarify, you know, our spiritual tradition. And similarly, to clarify within ourself what our motivation is because if we're doing it uh, for fame or to receive offerings or to uh, teach a, another religion and be able to <laughs> disparage Buddhism, then none of that is a very good reason, is it? Yeah, and when we don't have a good reason, we may learn a lot of information, but the end result is not going to be good if our motivation is all messed up, okay? So even though we're still sentient beings and our, you know, we may still have questions about refuge, we may still not have bodhicitta, uh, you know, still we admire those things, we have regard for them, we want to put our mind in that direction. And so that is, you know, definitely a good foundation for doing the practice. Yeah, it's very different than uh, when it's like, well, you talk with this friend and you believe this and you talk with that friend and you believe that. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Your mind is, you know, very easily, you know, swayed. From, from one philosophy to another or, you know, in the morning you wake up and, oh, I want to become a Buddha, but as soon as you think of your hot tea or hot coffee, then, you know, Buddhahood goes out the window and you just want pleasure and, you know, and then in the middle of the day, you know, um, back and forth and back and forth, you know, so your motivation's not clear, even in terms of what you admire, you know. I mean, we don't, well, our bodhicitta's contrived, but still we admire it, you know. Whereas if you wake up in the morning, you say, oh, bodhicitta sounds good, and then a little bit later you go, that's so impractical, you know. Becoming a Buddha for the benefit of sentient beings, that sounds really egotistical. Anyway, it's too hard. So if I call it egotistical, then I don't even need to try and do it. Yeah. 
So you get yourself all your own motivation all tied up in knots. Yeah. So that's why we, you know, always at the beginning of teachings of a meditation session, we clarify refuge and bodhicitta. Okay. So do the visualization. All the holy beings in front of us. The lineage lamas, the Buddhas, bodhisattvas, arhats, and so forth. And yourself surrounded by all the sentient beings who are happy that you are generating bodhicitta and improving the qualities of your mind. Let's cultivate our motivation. When we think of the kindness of sentient beings, we can think of their kindness now in this life, but we also want to extend it back into previous lives and extend it forward into future lives. In other words, that sentient beings are have always been and will continue to be kind to us. But then a question comes, well, in a previous life, we weren't in the same kind of relationship we are now, and we were different people, and uh, we could very well have been enemies and clobbered each other and harmed each other and and so on. So how can I really say these sentient beings have uh, been kind to me? Yeah. They're so, their minds are so unstable that one lifetime they can be friendly and another lifetime not. Just as in this lifetime, one moment they're friendly and the next moment they're not. So that seems like a pretty good argument, doesn't it? That these sentient beings can be nice, but sometimes they are downright nasty. So I have a right to be nasty back. Well, then we have to ask ourselves, what good does being nasty back to somebody else do? How does that help us on our spiritual path? And we may say, well, it doesn't actually help, but it sure feels good to get even. Aren't I entitled to a little samsaric pleasure of getting even when somebody, after somebody has harmed me? 
Well, if that's what gives you happiness, okay. But check if, if it really gives you happiness or not. When your mind is stuck in presenting one reason after another why somebody else is not kind and why you should not see them as kind and why you should never act to them towards them as if they were kind. You know, and our mind gets stuck in that kind of pattern. What are we trying to prove? How, really, how is that going to benefit us? Either in this life or in future lives. How does that create virtue? How does that make the mind happy? And the more we really investigate, all the seemingly good benefits of getting even and being resentful evaporate when we really look at them. And so we can say in that way, those sentient beings who harmed us actually helped us because they make us see the stupidity of holding on to grudges and delighting in taking revenge. So even though they may not have intended to benefit us by harming us, the end result of making us really look deeper into our own mind has a beneficial result. And we probably wouldn't have understood that without those people doing whatever they did that we didn't like. So in this way, try and open the heart towards all living beings and generate the very long-term, wide and expansive wish to be of the greatest benefit to them, especially by helping them along the path to full awakening.
So what we're getting at is out of difficulties, benefit can come. Yeah, and to remain aware of that. Okay, so we're still in Chapter 5, Guarding Alertness. Yeah, and Shantideva has been telling us about the benefit of um, mindfulness and introspective awareness, as well as the drawbacks of not having them. So we'll continue a little bit with that. Um, we're on verse 19, and here he's uh, uh, drawing an interesting analogy, okay? So uh, imagine that you are in a uh, very crowded place, yeah? You went to, uh, I don't know, some people may have gone to a football game or a soccer game. Others may have gotten, gone shopping or to the movie theater. But you are jammed together with, pe- with other people. Okay? And you know you could get COVID from being in that situation. Okay? So if you're wise, are you going to wear a mask? and see if you can exit from that situation and, you know, find a less crowded one? Yes. Okay. You're aware of potential danger, and so you adjust your behavior accordingly. Yeah. You don't go in with saying, well, you know, I don't care. All these people could be covered carrying COVID, but I'm not going to get it. You know, some people do that, and they have gotten it. Okay. So this isn't the exact analogy Shanti Deva used, but it's close. Okay. He said, just as I would be attentive and careful of a wound when amidst a hustling, uncontrolled crowd, so I should always guard the wound of my mind when dwelling among harmful people. So the analogy is you are in a crowd, and, you know, here it is, you, you know, in his example, you have a wound, okay? So who knows how you got your wound, but it hurts, and Although it's bandaged, it could easily get infected, and you know if it gets infected, you're in big trouble. So you take care of it. You don't take the bandage off and, you know, say, well, it doesn't matter. Nothing will happen. You take care of it. So he's saying here, too, when we are amidst harmful people or people who don't keep good ethical conduct, we should recognize that our mind is like a wound in that our mind can be adversely affected by being around these people. And because, you know, just as we would protect a physical wound from infection, 
we want to protect our mind, which is susceptible to generating negative thoughts. Uh, we want to protect our mind from the influence of people who uh, don't have good value values or whose behavior is really harmful because, um, you know, something our parents told us years ago that we never believed actually is true. Yeah. Did, did you hear the thing of birds of a fle- feather flock together? Yeah. So whoever you choose as your friends, you're going to become a bird of the same kind like them and fly and act like them. So be careful who you hang out with. Okay. Our parents taught us that. Of course, you know, we thought our parents didn't know what they were talking about. Um, but it, it happens to be true. So we want to take care. And this is why if you're really um, serious about your Dharma practice, you want to really pay attention what environments you put yourself in and who you make friends with. Yeah, It's fine to be friendly with everybody, but that's different than making everybody your closest friend who you confide in and whose advice you listen to. Yeah. So you want to really be careful with that because we are susceptible to uh, other people's influence and to their arguments about why we should or shouldn't do something. And especially when we want other people to like us and we want to belong and we want to be one of the crowd and we don't want to be the left out person who nobody likes, then we are all too willing to adjust our behavior and our way of thinking to fit in. And then we wind up getting in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So you may have had experiences of this sort in your own life. Yeah. Uh, I know with the guys that I uh, correspond with who are incarcerated, this is a big thing for them. Yeah. And especially when they're going to be released, it's so important that they don't go back to the same neighborhood with the same friends because they'll fall into the same bad habits. Yeah. Of course, the Department of Corrections doesn't give them enough money to start out somewhere else and make a new life for themselves. So they often wind up going back there and, you know, and then returning to prison. Uh, okay. So it, it's really imperative that, that we look at this. Yeah. Who do we spend time with? Who do we admire? Whose advice and words do we value? <coughs> Whose behavior do we respect? Yeah. And, and really pay attention to that and be careful, you know, of who we let influence us and what 
situations we put ourselves into. Okay? So, for example, you know, this is what AA is trying to do. It takes you out of the environment and the friends that encouraged your drinking and helped you to justify it and puts you into an environment with other people who are also trying to overcome their alcoholism and start anew, okay? And so these kind of groups are are very, very helpful, you know, uh, to people. And rather than, you know, put ourselves in bad situations with, with people who act negatively and then having to change it, Good to be aware at the beginning. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean we can always avoid being in groups with people who, uh, you know, lack ethical conduct. Okay. In fact, sometimes they're your relatives. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, you gotta go home for family dinner once in a while. Okay. So these situations are just like verse 19 is talking about, okay? We have to guard our mind when we know we're going into situations with people who are going to talk in a certain way or advocate certain ways of thinking and believing. So we prepare our mind beforehand, being very clear about what our values are yeah, beforehand, and then knowing that we're going in that situation, we can be friendly to those people, but let's not hang out and spend a long time with them, okay? They may be really jazzed on QAnon and want to tell us the latest QAnon theory, yeah, Um, and you may love getting, you may be one of these people who love getting into arguments with other people, yeah, I, maybe back off. You don't need to fight with the QAnon people, yeah? And also don't let yourself be influenced in a positive way by them either, yeah? When we're in situations like that, we just change the subject, yeah? I've learned changing the subject works very well when, you, you know, the topic of conversation is something that... uh you don't want to get into. Okay. I remember once um, a friend invited me over for Thanksgiving or some holiday to his uh, to his family's house. And, you know, his parents had been married, I don't know, 40, 50 years, 60 years, something like that. So in the middle of the, con- the conversation, you could tell the husband and wife were having one of, you know, they were like, at each other a little bit, and you could tell it was one of, you know, how these things that happens after you've been with somebody for a while. And uh, and so I just changed, you know, they were talking about something. I took one word out of the subject and redirected the conversation to something else, okay? And, my, and, and then the evening was fine, and my friend said to me afterwards, like, wow, you know, I never thought that I could change the subject and 
you know, that was so great what you did. It really prevented a fight. Yeah. So, so try it sometime. Yeah. Even, you know, my friend didn't think about it because it was his parents, but why not? You know, change the subject. It, it really works quite well. (laughs) Okay. Verse 20. And if I am careful of a wound through fear of it being slightly hurt, then why uh, do I not guard the wound of my mind through fear of being crushed by the mountains of hell? Okay, so if you have a like a really nasty cut in your arm and you're amidst a crowd, I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're like this protecting it because you know how easily you could get hurt. But, and if you know your mind is just as easily susceptible to wrong views and anger and, you know, ganging up against somebody else and just saying nasty things about them, yeah, then remember that if you do that, you're creating the karma to be born in the hell realm, okay? And so, you know, if you're afraid of your, your arm getting mashed, then, you know, have some awareness of the danger of being born in the hell realms if you just give in and let your mind, you know, talk bad about other people or, uh, or get into one of these conversations where everybody's telling nasty stories about somebody. Yeah, you ever been in one of those and you try and one up the other people by, I got a really nasty story about this person. And then you kind of embellish the story to make it, you know, really bad. So you're essentially lying. But, you know, you think that by telling this really horrible story about somebody, you're, uh, you know, you're, uh, one-upping all these other people who have bad stories, but theirs doesn't match yours. Yours is worse, yeah? And so we want to get prestige from from that, yeah? You ever been like that? Okay, so through remembering what is the long-term result of that kind of speech, then, uh, you know, and it's seeing the danger in that, then sheltering our mind, protecting our mind. Verse 21, should I behave in such a way as this? Then whether among harmful people or even in the midst of people I'm sexually attracted to, the steady effort to control myself will not decline. Okay, so when we're among harmful people, then there's the danger of arousing our anger you know, and vengeance and, you know, negativity towards somebody when you're in the midst of people that you could be sexually attracted to, then there's danger of attachment arising and doing all sorts of crazy things out of attachment, okay? Like the story, you know, that I I told you in Vinaya class a couple of days ago, okay? So, um Yeah, if we, 
if we see the disadvantages of being in, in situations that either nurture our animosity or nurture our attachment, yeah, then we won't waver from uh, practicing mindfulness and uh, introspective awareness. So with mindfulness, we'll keep our mind focused on, you know, what is virtuous. And with introspective awareness, we will pay attention to what's in our mind. So that if uh, we start to get influenced, adversely influenced by hanging around somebody, we will notice it instantly and be able to readjust our mind or exit from the situation. Okay? But here, you know, if we can continue the steady effort to control our mind without letting it decline, that's the best of all. Yeah? And sometimes when you're with those people who just, you know, love trashing somebody, uh, the fact that you don't engage in that or sometimes you even say to the people, you know, I feel really uncomfortable with this conversation. I don't feel comfortable, you know, with speaking so badly about somebody who's not even here. Yeah. Then it, it can, it can actually make the other people stop and think about what they're doing too. Verse 22, it is better to be without wealth, honor, body, and livelihood. And it is better to let other virtues deteriorate rather than ever to let the virtues of the mind decline. Now, really? Yeah, it's better to be without wealth but if I don't have wealth, what's going to happen to me when I get old? If I don't have wealth, who's going to respect me? If I don't have wealth, yeah, how will people know that I'm successful? What do you want me to, to do, you know, live on the street? Yeah. And so you're saying it's better to be without wealth than to let the virtues in my mind decline? Really? Because if I'm without wealth, then lots of non-virtue will exist in my mind. I'll be angry. I'll be upset. I might even steal something from somebody. So it's really much better to protect my wealth than the virtues of my mind. It's just a little bit of greed. Right? It's a good, good argument. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Doesn't it make sense? Yeah? If I don't have any wealth, what would my parents say if they heard? Yeah. That I, after raising me and giving me an education that I don't have any wealth. I mean, they'll be angry, they'll be humiliated. So, yeah, I give up a little bit of virtue, it's okay. I'm doing it for the benefit of my parents. Yeah? 
And Buddhism says I should be kind to my parents, so. Okay, so it's better to be without wealth. Honor. I'm going to give up my, you want me to give up my honor? (laughs) I'll give up wealth before I give up honor. Yeah, because honor is my reputation. And that counts above everything. I will not have society disrespecting me. Yeah. So we're quite attached to our honor, aren't we? And Sandy Dev is saying that having a virtuous mind is more important than your honor. But nobody can see my virtuous mind. And it doesn't benefit me, but my honor, that benefits me. That gives me perks. I get in with the, with the rich people, with the people who are well connected. Yeah. And those connections really matter when you're trying to do business. Yeah. So my honor is important and it's the honor of the whole family. So I can't give that up. Yeah. And then Shanti Deva says it's better to be without my body than to give up the virtue in my mind. But if I don't have a body, I won't be alive. So, you know, isn't that more important to keep my body than to keep my mental virtue? I mean, mental virtue is just, you know, a good thought here and there. And it's like, you know, so what? But my body, this thing is the source of my happiness. This is what makes me me. I can't give it up because then I'll die. What is Shantideva talking about? And it's better to be without livelihood than to give without, to, to give up the virtue in my mind. But again, livelihood, it's like giving up wealth. You know, I'm out on the street with a basket. And that's dangerous. Yeah, nobody wants me out on the street, sitting on the street corner with my shopping cart. So I I better, you know, I'm not giving up my livelihood. So what in the world is Shanti Deva talking about? What kind of uh, system, what kind of way of thinking does he have that he values mental virtue more than wealth, honor, body, and livelihood? Okay? Think about it. Think about it. In Shantideva's way of looking at life, how does he come to this conclusion? What is it that makes him think this way? And why is he teaching it to us? Yeah, shouldn't he be teaching us about light, love, and bliss? Okay, so Shantideva has a worldview 
that understands the four truths. Okay? He understands dukkha. He understands the origin. He understands that there is a cessation to it and that there is a path. Okay? And he understands that that path starts with the mind, with having virtuous attitudes in the mind. And that if you don't have virtue in the mind, whatever wealth, honor, body, or livelihood you possess is not going to create the cause for your liberation, for your full awakening, or even for you to have a good rebirth. And it'll probably make you pretty miserable in this life too. Okay, so Shandideva is looking at things through the perspective of the four truths. And what are the actual causes of happiness? Not what do worldly people think is the cause of happiness. What worldly people think is the cause of happiness is not very reliable because you look at them and most worldly people are not terribly happy. Yeah. If you look at Shanti Deva, he would he was, you know, he was fine. Yeah. Even people did really nasty things to him. He was fine. He didn't get bent out of shape. Okay. So he's on to something. <laughs> also, if we give up the virtue of the mind we're going to have a hard time respecting ourselves. And when we don't respect ourselves, you know, that leads to depression, despair, you know, really getting hung up on self-criticism. Whereas the more we try and keep our mind, ah, in line with the causes of happiness and avoid the causes of suffering, the more we have some sense of internal peace, the more we can accept ourselves instead of having this constant barrage of, look at me, look what I did, I'm so terrible, na, 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 na. Okay. So think about this verse. So then Shantideva, I mean, listen to the next verse. Oh, you who wish to guard your minds, I beseech you with folded hands. Shantideva is like this before us, bending down, beseeching us. Always exert yourself to guard mindfulness and alertness. I should be bowing down to Shanti Deva. He's the one with the virtuous mind. Why is he beseeching me? Okay, why? Because I don't always think so clearly, and he has to do something really drastic to get the point across to me. Yeah, wouldn't you feel? 
Would you feel embarrassed if His Holiness came up to you and said, always protect your mind by having a virtuous attitude? If His Holiness leaned over and said that to you, looking in your eyes, would you feel embarrassed? I would feel embarrassed. Yeah, it's like, oh, he's been telling me this for a long time, and I'm so such a knucklehead that he has to, you know, beseech me as if I'm some valuable person to do what's good for me and other people anyway. Yeah, I would be horribly embarrassed. But here, this is exactly what Shantideva is doing. Nobody here seems to nod their head when I asked, would you be embarrassed? You're not, you wouldn't be embarrassed? One person, two people. The rest of you would not be embarrassed. That's interesting. I couldn't not be embarrassed. I mean, if His Holiness is begging you to keep a virtuous mind, and He's been teaching you that for years, and then He begs you to do it, you don't feel a little bit ashamed of yourself in a good way? You'd be more embarrassed if you did What? It would be more embarrassing if you did More embarrassing if I did it. No, <laughs> it should be more embarrassing if His Holiness did. So that means I have to do that? You want me to beg you to be virtuous? Why do you think I've been teaching all these years anyway, you dimwit? I'm sorry, maybe it's my self-centeredness, but how it strikes me is, oh my gosh, he has such compassion that he's not going to let me fall through the cracks. <laughs> and he, he sees how habituated I am to non-virtue, and it mm. hasn't gotten through yet, and he's still there helping me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, he is. But that doesn't make you feel embarrassed. Like I, you know... Yeah, he hasn't given up on me, but, you know, wh why do I make him <laughs> do something, have to do something like this to get the message through? Interesting. Yeah. I think you're speaking from a more developed mind, um, but like a mind like my one, I, I know that I gave my best, but my mind was so uncontrolled that there was no way that I was able to. So I would see that um, um, his beseeching me rather like, oh yes, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that. Thank you so much for your kindness giving me this advice. Um, but I know that I was out of control. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Okay. Anyway, always exert yourself with mindfulness and introspective awareness. Okay. Verse 24. 
So people who are disturbed by sickness have no strength to do anything useful. Likewise, those whose minds are disturbed by confusion have no strength to do anything wholesome. So before he was talking about not letting ourselves be influenced by people with a lot of animosity and then people with a lot of attachment, now he's talking about confusion. Okay. So if somebody who's disturbed by sickness, I mean, you're, when you're really sick, you can't really think very clearly. Yeah. So it's hard to do anything useful. If you're really sick, you just have to lie in bed and, you know, do your best. Okay. Likewise, when people are disturbed by confusion, they have no strength to do anything wholesome. So what could, what kind of confusion could somebody have that they can't think in a wholesome way or, 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 you know, direct their mind to virtue. You, know? you think about, you know, how you are when you're confused. Yeah, what's going on in your mind when you're confused? I can't really tell the difference between virtue and non-virtue, and I can't distinguish between when I'm in an afflicted state or when I'm not in an afflicted state. Yeah. Or even if I feel slightly afflicted, like I'm slightly angry, my indignation and my feeling that, well, I'm right anyway, overrides my ability to say this is an affliction. I need to, this is harmful to myself and others and to stop it because I believe my wrong, I believe the thoughts too much. Yeah. Okay. So the mind gets confused about what to practice and what to abandon. What is virtue to practice? What is non-virtue to abandon? And instead, we spend our time going around in circles. Yeah? And we sometimes may vacillate between the different extremes. Sometimes we don't even get to vacillating. We just stay in a circular holding pattern. (laughs) You know, going round and around uh, in our confusion. Uh, saying, what do I do? What do I do? And the question is not, what do I do? The question should be, how do I calm my mind so I can see the situation clearly? Because in a confused state of mind, I can't make a good decision, which is what he's saying here. Yeah. Those whose minds are disturbed by confusion have no strength to do anything wholesome. You can't make a wholesome decision. You're just confused. Yeah? And we can spend hours and days and years and lifetimes going in this. Yeah? I have one friend and... uh, uh, she had wanted to ordain in a, a different Buddhist tradition. And I didn't really know that, but I was, I'm friends with the people in that tradition. And I was talking to one of my friends who, saying, well, you know, so-and-so, 
she just wanted to ordain and then she didn't want to ordain and she was coming and then she wasn't coming and then she was, you know, going to start with the training and then she decided not to. And this went on for years and finally we told her no. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't know that about my friend. But once somebody pointed it out, it was like, yeah. And so there she was. She had had the opportunity, but she was, you know, the turkey on the fence with Thanksgiving coming and, you know, stayed on the fence leaning this way and leaning that way, but not coming down on either side. Yeah. And then... Somebody kicked her off the fence altogether, you know. And they said, look, you know, that, that's not... Yeah. Okay. So we, we really should try and notice when our mind is stuck in confusion. And instead of thinking, what do I do? Because what do I do is not the question when we're confused. Yeah, we first have to calm our mind and see the situation clearly. And then, you know, when we have a clear mind that can evaluate what to practice and what to abandon, what to do becomes quite obvious. Yeah, and we don't have to fret over it. Okay, 25, whatever has been learned, contemplated, and meditated upon by those whose minds lack introspective awareness, just like water in a leaking vase, it will not be retained in their memory. Hmm, this sounds like me. What was I talking about? Okay. So, when... Your mind is like a leaky, <laughs> a leaky vase, okay? Because your mindfulness is not strong. And remember, mindfulness is related to memory. Yeah? It can actually be translated as memory, too, the same word. So if we don't have any mindfulness or memory of what is virtue and of what we're studying, contemplating, and meditating... Yeah, and we don't have any introspective awareness that is aware that our mindfulness is lacking. Then we learn, contemplate, meditate, and it just goes in one ear and out the other, you know, like pouring water into a leaking vase. Yeah, it can't hold anything. And so our mind really becomes like that. So he's really going into the, the disadvantages of not paying attention to having mindfulness and introspective awareness. So remember here, mindfulness, this is not secular mindfulness. We're not talking about sitting there at, with bare attention and just being aware of what's going on in your mind. That's not the kind of mindfulness we're talking about. We're talking about here the mindfulness that is coupled with wisdom 
that can pay attention to something that is helpful to us, something that is true, something that is virtuous, so that we can uh, integrate it more with our mind. Yeah. And not sitting there just, you know, observing what's going on in our mind. Because if you're sitting there, you know, okay, I want to be, I want to develop mindfulness about emptiness. So then you go into mindfulness that's just bare attention. Emptiness. Yeah, my stomach is empty. When are we going to eat lunch? Oh, I'm mindful that I'm hungry. I'm mindful that I want to eat. Oh, they said that might be linked to attachment. I'm mindful of that. But I don't think it's attachment. This is a biological need. So I'm mindful of that thought. And I hope that what they have for lunch today is something that I like. You know? Yeah. Where is that? Is that going to help you on the path to awakening? So that kind of sounds like introspective awareness, just being aware of what's happening in your mind. Yeah, and I'm wondering if but, but introspective awareness, it is being aware of what's happening in your mind, but it's for a specific purpose. It's not just, well, I'm aware and it doesn't matter what's going on in my mind. I'm aware of what's going on in my mind because it matters. And if I'm off base, I need to sound the alarm and apply the antidote or renew my mindfulness or somehow get my mind going in the direction I want it to go in. Okay? So it's not just noting what what is happening. Yeah? It has a certain ability to evaluate as well. Hmm? Okay. Then 26. Even those who have much learning, faith, and willing perseverance. So that sounds like somebody who's going to be a good practitioner. They've studied a lot. They have deep faith. They persevere and have joyous effort. Okay, sounds like they would be a very good practitioner. But even that person will become defiled by a moral fall due to the mistake of lacking alertness. Okay, sounds like the story I told you two days ago. Somebody who was known for practicing quite well. Yeah? And that didn't have the the uh, introspective awareness, yeah, or didn't have the um, the the joyous effort to push the mind back into the right direction, even if he knew it was going in a wrong direction. Yeah, sometimes we know we're going in the wrong direction. But the mind doesn't want, the mind, yeah, it stays stuck. It doesn't want to shift and go where we know we should, because we don't like shoulds. Yeah, I want to do what makes me happy right now. (laughs) 
Yeah. Okay. 27. The thieves of unalertness or non-alertness, non-introspective awareness. Okay. So those thieves in following upon the decline of mindfulness will steal even the merits I have firmly gathered so that I shall then proceed to lower realms. So not only does being spaced out and lacking introspective awareness get me involved in negativity now, okay, and not only does it prevent me from uh, creating virtue now, but whatever merit I've created in the past, it makes me destroy that merit by letting my mind wander to something non-virtuous or letting my mind wander to distorted views. Yeah. So remember what destroys merit? Yeah. Anger animosity, spite, anything along that line, and wrong views. So when we don't have introspective awareness, then our mind very easily goes into that kind of non-virtue, which destroys or adversely affects the ripening of whatever merit uh, we've created in the past. So in that way, it's like a thief. Um, in my own experience, uh, doing Vipassana-type meditation or mm-hmm. uh, insight meditation or, or practice more commonly found in the uh, Theravadan tradition, um, there's more of a sense of accomplishment or ability, confidence and ability that one's mindfulness is growing and in in our tradition, we don't spend so much time doing that as much as studying on and reflecting and meditating on a cushion and then going through our day. So I'm just wondering if, I know for myself, I find it harder to stay mindful through a day where I'm busy with many other activities. Mm-hmm. And um, I, as much as I try to set an intention to do that, um, I fall short. And so I'm wondering what advice or yeah. help you can... Okay, so um, are you seeing staying in a Vipassana retreat, meditating 10 hours a day as the solution to your lack of mindfulness? No, I just have that as a comparison. You know, I've, I've had that experience. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how do we do this in our tradition? Yeah, but, you know, having a 10-day retreat, yeah, like that, you come out of that retreat and you have that mindfulness for a certain period of time, and then it quickly fades, doesn't it? Yeah? So it's what we're trying to do is develop something that is balanced. Yeah? Where being mindful doesn't mean you always have to be in retreat or just a few days after that retreat. Okay? Yeah. Also, you know, what you're referring to is um, 
that is very popular in America or in the West, but it's not the way of meditation of all Theravada traditions. It's the way of, you know, that specifically what they call Vipassana is the way of one teacher's teaching it. The other teachers, yeah, uh, you're practicing the four foundation, four establishments of mindfulness. And that is using mindfulness in a very different way. It isn't just the bare attention. Okay. What I find interesting is one of the places that teaches that the name of their center does not have Buddhist in it. It's so and so meditation center. Yeah. Whereas I think when you're doing, uh, practicing mindfulness in a Buddhist context is very much conjoined with wisdom. It's not just bare attention. You're paying attention to a specific object, invest, observing it, investigating it, seeing how it functions, how it relates to other things. Okay. And mindfulness there is, you know, you are mindfulness of your, your mindfulness is of the body. And what is your body? For example, in the first one, what is my body composed of? Okay. How does, you know, the composition of my body affect my mind? Is this body an object of attachment? Is it an object of aversion? You know, how do I relate to my body? So, Mindfulness is investigating all of that. It's not just noticing, oh, I have an itch. Okay? <laughs> it's like, oh, I have an itch. This body is very seldom satisfied and comfortable. Why is that? Yeah, well, it was taken under the influence of afflictions and karma. So why do I expect it to be comfortable? Okay. So it's a, a different way of meditating. Okay. And, you know, what's happened, especially, uh, is, you know, young, 40, 50 years ago, some young people went to Thailand. They learned Buddhism and they learned that Vipassana technique. If you do that Vipassana technique in the context of the four truths, you're going to be meditating in a certain way. But the, those people who brought it back to the West didn't want to bring religion. They just wanted to bring a meditation technique that they thought would be helpful to people. So they didn't teach the four truths. Yeah. So... You know, the, the whole context of things being impermanent, things being unsatisfactory by nature, you know, because they're produced by karma and afflictions, that there's not being a self. That, the, the technique they taught was, ta was taught independent of that whole context. So it's going to bring a different result. Yeah. I know many people, like you said, who have benefited from that. That That's no question. I also know people 
or have heard of people who have freaked out because it was too intense. Okay. Um, yeah. But what I'm just saying is we have to differentiate Buddha's mindfulness, Buddha's vipassana from, you know, things that are taught in a different context. Okay. Yeah, because what we're trying, and the masters in Thailand too, yeah. I mean, if you go to Thailand, you get the whole, you know, the three characteristics are hammered into you, yeah, and you get the whole Buddhist framework. So, yeah, and the the thing is that the philosophical framework you do something in is going to influence the results of your meditation. So your meditation technique will bring different results according to the context in which it's done. So I knew a rabbi, for example, you know, very devoted, uh, you know, to Judaism. He did a Zen retreat, and the conclusion of his Zen retreat was he became more convinced in the existence of God. Okay? So if you do Zen from the perspective of being a Jew or a Christian or an Islam or somebody with a theistic perspective, you could come out with that result. If you're doing Zen from a Buddhist perspective, you're not, you're not going to come out with that result. Okay? So it's not just a technique, it's the whole context in which it's done. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, leaky vase. Okay. <laughs> Thieves of non-alertness. So 28, this host of thieves who are my own disturbing conceptions, my own afflictions, will search for a good opportunity. Having found it, they will steal my virtue and destroy the attainment of life in a happy realm. Okay? So... Uh, our afflictions are often referred to as thieves, yeah, because they steal our virtue, yeah. But we usually think of thieves as like, you know, these horrible, ugly, you know, looking people who are very sinister, who are going to break in your house in the middle of the night and take your piggy bank or you know, we think of them as just like horrible things. Yeah. Do you ever think of the thieves as people dressed in suits and ties with nice haircuts who work on Wall Street? You should. <laughs> because where did the 08 financial mess come from? It didn't come from the ones who broke in your house 
although those ones who broke in your house to steal your pity piggy bank get thrown in prison, but the ones who work on Wall Street went scot-free. Okay, so we have to be more clever in discerning what is a thief and what is not. You know, both in a secular respect and in a Dharma sense, okay? But just as in a secular thing, we can get confused, yeah? Because we have an image of a thief. In a Dharma sent, setting, too, we can think, oh, a thief is... Yeah, like those times when I got so angry, I was yelling and screaming and crying and behaving abominably. Yeah, we think, oh, that's a thief stealing my virtue. But this person over here is really attractive. And you know, I've been watching in these Buddhist magazines, they have all sorts of ads for dating Things date, you know, where you can meet Buddha boy. Baby, that's Buddha boy. Hmm. Then we can practice together. That would be so nice. And you go off on this big fantasy. We'll have our seats right next to each other. Yeah. And there's Vajrasattva Yabhyam in front of us. Yeah. Oh, we're trying to receive the blessings of the Buddha. <laughs> yeah. No recognition of that being a thief. Yeah. No recognition at all. Okay. So... <laughs> We have to uh, redefine or reimagine what a thief looks like, okay? Because our thieves, are, they are very clever, yeah? They come when we're not suspecting them. So that's, that's why I say never think, oh, I've dealt with that problem, I'm over it, that affliction is not going to bother me again. Because as soon as you think that, boy, it comes out of left field, or right field, I don't know which one, but it clobbers you. Okay? So, <laughs> it steals our virtue and destroys the attainment of life in a happy rebirth. 29, now we're developing some strength. Therefore, I shall never let mindfulness depart from the doorway of my mind. If it goes, I should recall the misery of the lower realms and firmly reestablish it there. But I don't like thinking about the misery of the lower realms. That's kind of creepy. Anyway, that's why I, I left the religion I was brought up with because they kept threatening me to go to hell. And I just thought that was a religion of threats. And I, you know, like really hell realm looks like Dante paint paintings. Oh, come on. 
you know, I, I don't want to believe in something out of threats. So I left that one, and now here, Buddhism is so good, but they just keep talking about the lower realms and getting me born in them. It's the same old stuff. You know, they're just threatening me. They think I'm still a cow herd, a sheep herd, and that I'm uneducated, and so they have to threaten me to get me to do anything nice. I am above that. <laughs> and our arrogance shows that we are not above that. <laughs> yeah, that we're right in the middle of it. Okay. So, uh, you know, instead of, uh, you know, if the lower realms is not the reason that speaks to you, use whatever reason does speak to you. You know, if I let my mindfulness go and I, and I'm acting in a crazy way, you know, my Dharma friends are not going to respect me and I'm going to destroy their faith. That's a good reason, you know, to get us back on track because I don't want to destroy the faith of other people. Okay, so whatever works for you to get get you back on track, or you know, if I just my mind my mindfulness is gone, if if I just let it keep daydreaming about Buddha boy, you know, or daydreaming about the revenge I'm gonna get on so and so who insulted me in seventh grade, um, you know, then what kind of person am I? You know, use integrity and say, am I that kind of person who just takes delight in these kinds of thoughts? I don't want to be that kind of person. Yeah, I can do better. Okay. So if our mindfulness goes, then, you know, Think of the misery of the lower realms or whatever works for you. And I think, you know, the lower realms, I know for me it works. Yeah. When I, when I look at those, the beetles, you know, or the stink bugs or the spiders or the little gnats. Yeah. I mean, we have lots of little guys around us. You know, and if you don't like little do little guys, do you want to be born as a turkey? Yeah. Do you want to act like those turkeys act? Yeah. <laughs> 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 they chuckle. <laughs> and they're, they're big red thing here and they spread their feathers thinking they're a peacock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Do you want to be born as a turkey? I don't. Yeah, I don't want to be reborn as a turkey. Okay, so just, you know, think of whatever speaks to you. Yeah? Do you want to be reborn as a, as a spider? 
so that people go look at you and they go, Ooh. yeah, especially one of those big spiders like in India, you know, they're really this big, yeah. We had one in our room that wrapped, it was in the sink, you know, and it was wrapped around the faucet of the sink with his ten, what did he have, legs? Yeah. And it's like, well, I guess we can't brush our teeth there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, but if he moves, it's not that far from the sink to where our bed is. Uh, do we want him to move? What are we going to do with this guy? Yeah. So, you know, do you want to be reborn so that people look at you and, and have that reaction of, yeah. I mean, he was a lucky spider that he was in a room with Buddhists. If he wasn't with us, somebody would have taken their shoe and mashed him. Yeah. So he, he was actually quite a, he had some virtue in there <laughs> to not get mashed. Okay. So, so think about this. Verse 29 is like, Okay, I'm getting my enthusiastic uh, energy back, and I'm going to make a determination. Okay. And then the verses that follow are telling us how to do that, what environment to put ourselves in, what kind of attitude to have. So we'll do verse 30 uh, through through staying in the company of spiritual masters, through the instruction of abbots, and through awareness of danger of lower realms. Mindfulness will easily be generated in fortunate people who practice with respect. If we don't respect the teachers, the abbots, the teachings, then we're not going to listen to, to them and they won't have any effect on our mind. Yeah. But if we have respect, then we're considered a fortunate person. And then if we stay in the company of spiritual masters, yeah, after you have looked at the qualities of a spiritual master and made a good decision, not just followed along somebody who's charismatic, uh, as a groupie without checking out their qualities. Okay. So if you uh, stay in the company of spiritual masters through the instructions of abbots, through your teachers, through wise Dharma friends, conversations with them, and through your own awareness of wanting to be a respectable person and not harm others by our bad behavior, yeah. then our mindfulness will be generated easily and we will keep our mind on what is virtue. Okay. So it's encouraging us to 
have respect for the three jewels. And then, you know, put ourselves in situations where we're around people who are good examples for us. Okay. Any other questions before we stop? Okay. <laughs>